Welcome to this conversation. My guest today is Dr. Jessica Mormon. And boy, do I have an introduction. Dr. Mormon is Senior Director for Science and Policy in the Evangelical Environmental Network. She has a PhD in Earth and Atmospheric Sciences from Georgia Institute of Technology. She's worked with Johns Hopkins, University of Michigan, Smithsonian Museum of Natural History, and I'm sure the list goes on and on. Welcome so much, Dr. Mormon, to this conversation. Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you. And the topic is climate science. You are a climate scientist. And in this day and age, frankly, Jessica, I've been doing these interviews for years now. The evidence seems overwhelming and the public seems not to care are we doomed with climate change? That is a great question and exactly one of the myths that I want to dispel. One of the key things that climate science tells us is that when it comes to the future, we are not doomed. And um, one thing that my uh, fellow scientist, he's a meteorologist and also a Christian, Paul Douglas says, we are not hopeless and we are not helpless. And that's because when we look to what science, climate science indicates for projects for the future, the biggest factor that's left uncertain is what are we going to do about it? We still have time to pull ourselves back from the brink. We are not doomed. If we, it's our carbon emissions. If we change up our act right now, then we can still have that healthy and safe future for our kids and for ourselves. Oh, Dr. Mormon, but it seems like in order to believe in that hope, we have to kind of believe in our fellow human beings. And as I mentioned before, you scientists have been telling this to us for many, many years. And in our policy and our public reactions, we don't see a response that says, let's get going, let's fix this. What do you see? Yeah, that can be really, really frustrating. I'll, and I'll tell a story that really for myself brought that home was I was two years old. I was celebrating my second birthday, the day that Dr. James Hansen went and testified before the congressional, a congressional committee, essentially confirming that the best available science had uh, from the 80s, this is in the 80s, this is in 1988, confirmed that climate change is happening, that it's real, and that it's caused by us. And again, that was a, a, my full lifetime ago almost. And so it is really frustrating to not see that action being taken over the intervening decades. But what I'll tell you as a climate scientist, but also as someone who is actively working in the policy arena, working with our lawmakers and members of Congress, um, things have begun to change. And we begin to see a shift in this last decade towards beginning to flatten that curve, the curve for carbon emissions and the curve for climate change, that curve has begun to bend. And we're seeing across um, different sectors, seeing some action in the government sector, seeing some action in the market sector that is trending towards and setting us up for that clean energy economy that we need to have a safe climate. And also I'll say to um, protect our health as well, because when we uh, switch to a clean economy, we get not only are we fighting climate change, but we're also fighting 
uh, life harming pollution too. So it's beginning to change, but the key thing is, is it's not happening fast enough. We still have a lot of work to do to ensure that safe climate and healthy future and healthy present. And this decade between now and 2030 is really, really critical. But to give some hope, kind of thinking about this as, um, you know, trying to steer the Titanic away from the iceberg, we've begun to shift the Titanic. And the question is, are we going to shift it fast enough? What we do in this decade is going to determine that. And I can tell you that I have seen so many more people wake up to the need to do something and are getting more involved and more active. And so that, that really gives me hope. You come at this from a perspective of Christianity. Your organization is Evangelical Environmental Network. How does being a Christian affect your work as a scientist? Because a lot of people think that science and religion just don't work together too well. Absolutely. That is another myth that I am here to dispel. One truth about myself is that I am a climate scientist because of my faith in Christ, not in spite of it. What I find for me studying God's creation or science is science is simply the study of God's creation. And my faith has just been so critical in setting the trajectory for me to become a scientist. I grew up just south of your listening area, uh, outside of Knoxville. I grew up in the foothills of the great smoky mountains and that experience of just being immersed in God's beauty, the beauty of his creation inspired me to become an earth scientist. And then secondly, I was inspired to become a climate scientist because learning that with climate change, it impacts the most vulnerable first and worst together that when I learned that I was immediately, the Bible verse came to mind where Jesus instructs his followers to love God but also love your neighbors as yourself. And that's where it all came together that I could help fulfill in my professional career, that commandment that Jesus gives us to love God and love your neighbors as yourself by pursuing climate science. Well, I've experienced what you're up against firsthand when I was a child. And I made the statement to our, to my parents who referred me to the preacher, because I made the observation that I bet that the miracles in the Bible could be explained scientifically, like how the water became wine or how the seas parted. And that was not well received because you're supposed to believe these things by faith. How do you present evidence to people who believe that God speaks to them through the Bible and they know it by faith? Yeah, I think one key thing for me is humility humility in my, in my faith of knowing that God is sovereign, but also humility in, in science as well. One of the um, key things that we do as science in the scientists is quantify uncertainty, get a sense of how much we do know from the data, from our observations, and then quantify how much do we not know about this particular thing. And I think that's where both as a person of faith as well as a scientist having a good grip of just uh, walking humbly and having that humility and in, in walking in areas where, you know what, there's uncertainty in both arenas. And so I think there's a place for faith in science and a place for science in faith by uh, bringing my, what I've learned through science, again, 
just studying God's creation, it's given me a better picture of uh, how magnificent God is, how beautiful his creation is and how much he loves us. It's given me a bigger window into those truths that the, that the Bible, that scriptures tell us. And so that's been really critical of science helping enhance my faith journey. But then on the other side, science has helped me be a, a witness in a better way to partner with God in his mission to, um, uh, essentially bring heaven to earth. And for me, that means making this world a better place. And that's where environmental care really comes into it by seeing that through science, that we have increasingly more extreme weather by seeing that environmental pollution is harming our, our children's health um, and our health. I can be better at that mission of loving my neighbor and making sure they have a healthy environment to thrive in. And so science has, I feel like has made my uh, walk as a Christian even, even stronger. You know, it's so nice, Dr. Mormon, to have a face associated with research with a climate scientist. And I think the concept of studying God's creation is, is beautiful and a, a wonderful way to frame the work that you do. I wonder if we can get a little more specific. You say that the climate has changed and that at this point we're at a critical juncture. How do you know? What is the evidence? That is a wonderful question and a question that I love getting. My particular brand of climate science is studying how climate changed in the past before we had weather stations um, using uh, God's creation, the rock record, for, look for clues of how climate has changed in the past. And what we know from that is that climate has always changed in the past. It hasn't been static, but what it also tells us is that something else is going on today that's different from anything else that's happened in the past. Um, and so what I, what I do in my work and what my colleagues have done in their work and actually Nobel Prize winning work that was just awarded in physics this year to getting at that question, how do we know that climate change today isn't just part of Earth's natural cycle, but it is us. And what, what I do in my work is I essentially um, conduct a crime scene investigation. You look at all the uh, uh, common culprits of climate change from the past, whether that's the ice age cycles, is it the intensity of the sun changing? Um, is it uh, increased volcanic activity that's spewing uh, carbon dioxide and other uh, heat trapping gases? Are those factors which drove past climate changes, are they happening today? And what myself and my colleagues have been doing for decades is finding good answers to that really good question. And what we find is that no, it's not part of the ice age cycles. Actually, we're at the warmest peak in that cycle right now and would slowly be trending a bit colder if nature was taking its course. It's not the sun. We don't see increased volcanic activity to the level that would warm the planet. And as we tick off those culprits, what we find is that it's actually our um, emissions of carbon dioxide and other heat trapping gases through the energy that we use that is uh, warming the planet by uh, essentially increasing 
putting a, a, a warmer blanket in the atmosphere that traps those gases, warms the planet and fuels increasingly extreme weather like like floods we've seen um, across uh, Tennessee and Virginia to droughts and wildfires. You've just said it's not the typical ice age schedule. It's not the sun. It's not increased volcanic. It is our carbon emissions is what scientists have con concluded. But what is the evidence of that? How do you know that? Sure. So uh, this is one thing that I really love. And if it's okay, if I can geek out a little bit with your listeners, we know that the carbon dioxide is coming from us because there is a chemical fingerprint in that carbon dioxide molecule that points towards our human activity. What we find is that that chemical in, uh, fingerprint that essentially is for uh, fossil fuels the fingerprint for that, when we look at the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, we see that that chemical fingerprint for fossil fuels increases at the same time as the industrial revolution starts happening. And that the fingerprint for volcanic activity in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is going down. And so we've got a smoking gun there, but also with several other indicators that it's us. But one thing that I really want to drive home is that for me as a scientist, as well as a Christian, uh, knowing that the climate is changing because of our activity, that is actually good news. It's good news that it's us instead of a natural cycle, because it means that we can do something about it. And that's where we know that we're not hopeless and we're not helpless in this. We have uh, the tools and the know-how to change it. And we aren't just left at nature's mercy, which was the case for human civilization in the past, whenever climate changed. When it wasn't them, uh, it was climate impacting what they were doing, their lives, their livelihoods, and there's nothing they could do about it. But now we flip the script and because it's us impacting the climate, we have the ability to do something about it. And that, that gives me hope. That's a wonderful concept. And, uh, you know, you're just dealing with Miss Skeptical here, but we are having this conversation at a time when political leaders are trying very much to implement changes into our use of energy to get away from fossil fuels and to use more clean energy. And we have senators who represent states that sell coal who are actually one person, two people stopping the whole process and saying, I will support a change and what we think are improvements in our country, but not when it comes to clean energy. And you're at, you just said you're at the policy level. You talked about we can do something. It seems to me like I can't do anything on my level. It has to be done on a national and international level. And how do we make that happen when we've got business interests who have so much control to stop moves to clean energy? Sure. It can feel like our voices don't matter in the policy arena, especially um, when up against uh, against ind industry that has incredible resources to put towards it. But this is what I always encourage uh uh, the folks that, that I work with is just to remind them that your voice actually does matter. And that when we, uh, break through that feeling of, of helplessness and add that drop in the bucket 
drop after drop after drop, each of us lending our voices, it really does make a difference, especially as constituents. Your votes matter, your voice matters, your letters matter, whether that's directly to your congressperson's office, whether that's writing letters in your local newspaper, whether that's on social media, gathering your friends and family who care to lift your voice together. It does make a difference that we really do have to get our voices up and out there for that clean energy future. My guest is Dr. Jessica Mormon. She's Senior Director for Science and Policy with Evangelical Environmental Network. She is a climate scientist, and she says, sounds to me like what you're just saying is our vote matters. But if we write a letter, if we write a letter to the editor, if we write a letter to the senator that says support clean energy, what do we say? How do we word the letter? The key is finding those common values. And also one thing that, uh, so what we know, we know that Senator Manchin, that, that those who represent districts that are reliant on fossil fuels, we know that they care about their people, their workers, and making sure that they aren't left behind in the tr- clean energy transition. And I think that's something that, that all of us should ha- care about and have compassion for. And we have the opportunity in this transition to a clean economy which is already being driven by the markets. The truth is, is that clean energy, uh, utility scale, wind and solar is already the cheapest form of electricity out there. So it makes smart business sense to uh, switch to solar and to wind, but we can't repeat the, the, mistakes of the past where communities and workers, whenever an economic shift happened, were left behind, leaving forgotten communities. And we can't do that to our fossil fuel workers that yes, we do need to transition to this clean economy, but we can't leave folks behind. So let's in this, as we're negotiating these really historic levels of climate action, let's make sure that that's part of the puzzle. That's what I encourage uh, folks uh, whenever they're writing to, um, to their uh, representatives to one, point out <laughs> clean energy makes sense from a market-based standpoint, but uh, the markets aren't going to move fast enough. We, there is an important role for government. Uh, our ethical voices and voices from, from people of faith and from people who care about seeing not just carbon reductions, but seeing uh, people and communities lifted up um, in this transition to make a better world um, really lift their voices for that too. It just makes me wonder as you're talking about this and you're right on top of the political issue, Senator Manchin, you would be in a position to pick up the phone and call him. Have you ever talked to him? Hearing from his his constituents uh, matters the most, but also for your listeners, being right, uh, being neighbors as well, you know that experience and being able to contact your representatives who have a good relationship with him is, is a great way of reaching him as well. What would you add to what we've said in telling people to be active and to be involved in this issue. The thing that I'd add, research shows, is that there is more openness towards acting on climate than we perceive ourselves. And so this is something that matters to you to, uh, to really make a difference. 
talking about climate change is the most important thing that you can do and that you, uh, reaching your friends and family are the best messenger for doing that. That's also what the research shows. And so I just encourage all of your listeners, if, um, acting on climate change is a passion for them is something that they care about of protecting their community. As I've said before, lift your voice with your family, with your friends, start that conversation and absolutely have that conversation with your elected officials. One of the sayings is you can't do everything, but you can do something. And with the risk to our planet and to the future of the planet, we need to all be researching, being involved in talking about climate change. I'm curious, Jessica, Dr. Mormon, about what a day is like with your research being climate science. And I read somewhere that you look at cave stalagmites, you look at lake sediments, you look at soil deposits. Give us a picture of you at work doing your research. Every day is different, which is why it's so fun. And it is using uh, all of the state-of-the-art tools available to us. And so it is getting out into nature and using those geologic archives. It's, it looks like getting out into the lab and uh, doing those uh, laboratory analyses to um, unlock those clues that are in uh, the geologic archives that um, uh, uh, we bring back from the field. And then it's also doing uh, uh, computer modeling. <laughs> and so uh, to then put all those pieces together, all that data data together. Um, and I just want to say that it's, it's not just me. This is my colleagues in, in science uh, across the country and, and across the world doing it as well. And we just, uh, by bringing all of that data together, we just get such a clearer and clearer picture of the fact that the, the climate's changing and that it's us and that we can also do something about it. What do you do when you're studying lake sediment? Do you go collect soil from the lake and you bring it back to a lab and you put it under a microscope? I and mean, what is an example of what you're doing in your actual literal research? Sure. So it looks like um, uh, going to our lake site, going out in a boat, <laughs> getting a drill, drilling down into the lake sediments and coming back with this huge, long cylinder <laughs> of, cave, of, of, of lake mud, <laughs> or it's going into the caves and finding stalagmites that are already uh, on the ground that have already fallen over and splitting, we split up those, those stalagmites. We spit up, split up those, those cores of lake mud in half. And when we open them up, what we see are these beautiful layers. And each of those layers are like a page in a history book that tells us what the climate was like in the past. How rainy was it when that layer formed? How dry was it? How warm, how wet? And then we take this to the lab and we take small samples of each of those layers and uh, look for those chemical fingerprints that tells us about the rain. It tells us about the temperature. And after getting each of those little samples on each of those uh, layers, each of those pages of that natural history book, we get um, a full picture of how the temperature swung up and down or the rain swung up and down over time. And my colleagues and I were doing this um, at caves, at lakes, with trees, uh, ice cores all over the world. And so whenever we bring each of those records together, instead of being a pinprick in the ground for each of those records, we begin to get the full tapestry of how um, 
uh, climate change across the globe in space, but also back in time. And you're saying that now when you're looking at these, you talk about the chemical fingerprint and what you're seeing in the soil samples, in, in the work that you're doing is the chemicals that come from fossil fuels. Is that how it works? Is that how you identify it? That is one of those ways. So um, uh, this would be my colleagues who are working with ice cores. And uh, again, they get this core, long core, they open it up, they see these layers. And what is really incredible is in those ice layers, there's also trapped air bubbles. And so they're going in and measuring that ancient air, measuring the level of carbon dioxide, but then also this chem chemical fingerprint called the, the isotopic signature, the isotopes of the carbon dioxide. And an isotope is, is simply um, uh, different flavors of the same type of atom. And so they're looking at the different flavors of the carbon atom. One atom is heavier has a greater mass than the other because it has an extra neutron to it. Doesn't change the type of atom it is, but it changes the flavor of that carbon atom. By looking at the heavier carbon atom versus the lighter carbon atom, you can see, is this a volcanic source, which is has more of the heavier isotopes of carbon in it? Or is it the lighter type, which has the signature of fossil fuels? Because that comes from ancient plant materials. And you can kind of think about it as making a choice for yourself if you're going on a hike and putting on a backpack. Do you want to carry the heavy backpack up the mountain or do you want to carry the light backpack up the mountain? And so the ancient plants, they chose that lighter isotope to incorporate into their, their carbon structure. And so that choice, <laughs> that tendency carries through the geologic record so that now we can go and trace back. Uh, is this a, a fossil fuel source of carbon dioxide? or a, an inorganic, uh, a volcanic source, a rock source of carbon dioxide that is in our atmosphere. And again, we see that increasingly as we have been using fossil fuels, we've been changing the carbon chemistry of the atmosphere and populating it with all of these light isotope carbon atoms, carbon dioxide. Let's take a little peek into doomsday in a, a description of, it would be like a horror movie, I suppose, over time. But if we don't fix this problem, if we don't reduce our carbon footprint, if we don't uh, turn back the, the warming of the planet, what's going to happen in daily lives? What's going to happen in my life that's going to make things bad? Why do I really need to worry? Absolutely. So it's going to make life, frankly, unpredictable. We're already seeing the effects of a warming world, especially in our extreme weather events, sledding seen wildfires. And I can say for myself, growing up in East Tennessee, we recently had uh, back in 2016, five years ago, coming up on that anniversary of the wildfires in, in, in Gatlinburg, seeing that that was driven by months of uh, exceedingly dry temperatures, drought, that then whenever a spark happened, it was the perfect conditions to spark up a wildfire like our region has never seen before. 
those are wildfires that you expect to see out um, in California, out West, not in East Tennessee. We, we lost a family home. We're lucky that none of our, our friends and family were affected, but I think 14 people lost their lives in, in Gatlinburg, which is really tragic. And, and that is something that we uh, can expect to see more of. And it's not just for our communities, but also thinking of our, of our farmers, farmers across America know this it's making their planting season, um, unpredictable, um, rains aren't coming when they should, or they're coming all at once flooding their crops. We also see it with the expansion of, uh, of tick populations of where we don't have as cold winters. That's not knocking out those ticks and allowing them to spread into, into more regions. And so, so that's what we can expect to see more of that, more of those perfect storm conditions that we're not expecting. But again, I just want to remind listeners that we aren't doomed to this future. And that's why it is just so important to act. It's not too late, especially urgent act now um, will make the biggest difference that, and we do, again, we have the tools and the know-how to do it. We just need to raise our voices and make sure that our elected officials do what we're asking them to do to make that healthier, safer future for, for our children, for our neighbors, but also ourselves. And again, as it says um, in the Bible, love your neighbor as yourself. <laughs> what would you like for yourself? And we're seeing climate change hit at our homes, in our communities more and more. It's not a far off problem future or um, across the world. It's we're seeing it here at home, but we can make sure that that doesn't become the new normal. Thank you so much. We'll just end it right there. That was uh, quite an ending. Dr. Jessica Mormon. She is a climate scientist and she uses her scientific ability to study God's creation. She works with the Evangelical Environmental Network and was kind enough to give us her time today. Thank you again so much, Jessica, Dr. Mormon. And thanks to the listeners for tuning in to WEHC 90.7.